just a reminder that we got this baptism tank up here and it's going to be full of water next week and ready to baptize some people. So uh, you can register for that. Um, you can be spontaneous too. Uh, but if you plan, like you know I want to be baptized or talk to your kids, Quest will join us in here as well. Uh, I think our kids need to see the celebration of the faith. Uh, and so Quest will be in here with us next week as well. So talk to your kids, your elementary kids, your teenagers. Talk to yourself and, and just pray about it. God, is this time for me to just make a public declaration of my faith? And I'll, I'll be teaching a little into that next week as well before we start. So, uh, okay, let's get back to Father's Day, this message. One thing about dads is they tell the truth. You notice that your dads will just tell the truth. Like when you go out and you have this really good idea, your dad will be the first one to say, that is the most boneheaded idea I've ever heard in my life, right? Dads will say, don't do that, that's stupid. And dads just have a way of cutting through the truth sometimes. And, and I don't know that we always do it in the same like degree of feeling of love that moms always do. But I think the intention for dads is always that we wanna see our kids walking in what God has that's best for them. And I believe that what God has is best for us as a church is right here in God's word. Amen? Amen? This is it. And so this is kind of my Father's Day message to you. I, I'm just, I'll tell you what, all I'm doing here is just following the text. Like God said, preach through First Peter. And so we're just doing it. And this is what we landed on this week. And so here we go. We find this week that as we look through the, the scripture, um, I mean, have you noticed, I, before we get there, have you noticed that in our culture right now, that like morality and ideology and, and values, like there's, is all over the place? Am I the only one that's noticed this? Does it seem like it's just things are just kind of haywire right now? Last week we talked about a section of text where Paul talked about our conduct and how our conduct is a tool for evangelism. And he didn't, however, call us to just be a doormat in the world. You know, God has called his people to speak, and he has called us to have a voice. And if you feel like you don't have a voice, listen, God has called you to have a voice. And I believe that in our time right now, as a church and as the church, as a bigger church, that the church needs to begin to speak up. And we're going to talk about that this morning and what that means and what we're supposed to speak up about and how we prepare for that. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. While you're turning there, I'm going to read to you. It's out of 2 Corinthians 11. This is Paul's message to the church, and he says, I write to you as a father. And he says, in 2 Corinthians 11:4, he says, For you seem to gladly tolerate anyone who comes to you preaching a pseudo-Jesus, not the Jesus we preached. You have accepted a spirit and a gospel that is false rather than the spirit and gospel you once embraced. How tolerant you have become. And his call to the church is, look, get back to what God's word actually says and stop buying into all these other versions of Jesus that you hear. There is one version of Jesus and that is guided by the word of God. And so we're going to dig into this because as we see what Peter writes to us today, that message that Paul gives to the church, we need to filter that through this. So let's go to verse 13. Now, if you're following along in the app, the church app, there's sermon notes on here as well. Um, 
you can sign up to be baptized in there also, but follow along. I've got some notes for you, and I've got some resources for you this week, so we'll take a look at that at the end. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's see, is that it? Oh, one more verse. Having good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We'll stop there. Our central verse this morning that I want to talk to you about is this verse that says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In the New Living Translation, it says, if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. The NIV says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And so, we, I, I look at last week's message about conduct, and it seems as though this is rather simple, that you live your life in such a way Whereas you are showing Jesus through your actions, and someone says, what's different about you? And you say, oh, I'll we'll go to 1 Peter 3.15, and he says that I'm supposed to give a reason for the answer. And so they say, what's, what, what's going on? And you say, Jesus. One word, Jesus. That's it. I've now fulfilled 1 Peter 3.15. But the problem is, is it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. And it's also not that sweet and easy where you kind of just give the Sunday school answer, Jesus, like little kids, if you're in Sunday school and you ask kids a question, and raise like nine times out of 10, the answer is Jesus. So, you know, who built a boat and got in an ark for the Lord? Jesus, no kids, it's not Jesus. That was actually Noah, but good try. That's just kind of what we think. We just gotta just tell them Jesus and everything will be great. But there's a very different picture that Peter is painting for us in scripture, and I want to walk through the context of this because the picture he paints is actually very hostile and very challenging. And when you look closely, what we see is we see that the culture that the church was living in was full of challenges. We see hostility and ideologies they were up against. And there's three statements in these verses we just read that show us how bad it really was for the church in Corinth. The first thing he says is he says, be zealous for good. If you are zealous for good, this word, this wording is more accurately translated, be a zealot for good. And do you know what a zealot is? They're a fanatical person. They are someone who is just absolutely like an extremist. They are someone who is uncompromising. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in culture today, that if you want to stand for what God's word says is good, you are deemed a zealot. You are deemed someone who is fanatical. And so you've got to be uncompromising and determined. The church was in the same place back then, that if you were going to be someone who stood for good, you had to be zealous for it, and people viewed you in that way that you were one of those fanatical people who stands for what this book says. The second thing he says is, have no fear of them. In verse 14, have no fear. The New American Standard says, do not fear their intimidation. Another version says, do not fear their threats. 
So the picture he's painting here is okay. If you're going to be standing for good, you've got to be, you're going to be viewed as a fanatic. You've got to recognize that in the culture in which you live in, there is going to be intimidation. And there is a mainstream line of thinking that sought to intimidate and silence Christians. This was the culture they were in. If you don't get in line with the way the world thinks, you get threatened. Church cancel culture has been around for a long, long time. This is not a new thing. All the way back here in 1 Peter. And then the third thing he says is, when you are slandered. So that when you are slandered. Notice he doesn't write, if you are slandered. He says, when you are slandered. The church was being slandered for what they believed. Now what is slander? It goes after reputation. And here's what slander sound like. Sounds like. Those Christians, they're judgmental. Christians are bigoted. They're racist. They're homophobic. They're out of touch. This is what slander is. And this is what this church was dealing with. It's not enough to intimidate. We have to go over the reputation of these Christians. Now, this was their culture. And it was in this context that Peter wrote, always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to make a defense. The things that you're dealing with. Now, if you can recognize any similarities between the culture you're living in right now and the culture I just talked about, then keep listening. If you see no similarity whatsoever, then you know, have a nice nap or something. Listen anyway. God's word is not out of touch, amen? amen. God's word is not out of touch. This isn't just a, a ancient pages of old writings. God's word is for today. The Holy Spirit is alive and active. God is still moving. He is not dead. His church is not dead. His spirit is not dead. The move of God is not dead. Do you agree with that? And so we look at God's word and we say, God, if this book isn't out of touch, I, I'm looking around in my world right now at all these things and I don't know what to do. I can't find the answers. I'm not sure that the Bible talks about it. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it does. And so we're going to get out the magnifying glass and we're going to look closely at God's word because we are called as Christians to respond biblically to the culture in which we live. And so he says here, always be prepared to make a defense. This word defense, or in some translations, answer, is a Greek word and the word is apologia. And Apologia means this, a verbal defense, a reasoned statement or argument. This word is the word that is used in a courtroom scene when someone is making their defense before the court. They are making their legal defense before the judge or the jury. This word apologia is actually where we get our word apologetics. Has anyone heard that term apologetics before? You're going to know it after today. Apologetics. Apologetics is defined as reasoned arguments that defend doctrine. More specifically, it is involves defending and clarifying the Christian position in light of misunderstandings and misrepresentations, answering objections, criticisms, or questions from non-Christians. With the goal, this is important, with the goal of clearing away 
any difficulty, intellectual difficulties that non-believers claim stand in the way of their coming to the faith. This is apologetics. And so when Peter is writing, what he's saying to us is that when you are being intimidated, when you are being slandered, always be ready with your apologetics. Always be ready knowing what it is that you believe. I'll give you a couple examples in Scripture. Peter, in Acts 4, 8 through 12, I'm just going to read one of those verses, verse 10. He says, he was accused of something, and he says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was, this man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified by whom God raised from the dead. And he goes on to talk to them about salvation is found in Jesus alone. Paul, in Acts 22, he says, he stands up and he says, He's accused of something, and he says, listen to my defense. Same word. Listen to my apologia. Listen to what I have to say. I am ready to defend myself. I don't know, Christian, if you're ready to defend yourself against everything that is pressing up against what God's word says in your life. I don't know if you're ready to defend yourself if you have answers for, because it is difficult sometimes to navigate because it seems like the questions that are thrown at you change every other week. But he says to be ready. He says to be prepared. Be prepared. The root of this word prepared in the Greek means fitness. It means fitness. So get into shape your apologetics. Exercise. Get reps in. Be ready. And what Peter really wants to ask us is this, do you know, do you know, do you really, really, really know what you believe? And also, just as important of a question, is what you know that you really, really believe line up with the Word of God? And this is, this is his call to the church today. We are to have a sound defense of the faith. Are you ready? Don't be like I was when I first became a Foursquare pastor and my friend asked what Foursquare stood for and I drew a blank. And he said, aren't you a pastor of a Foursquare church? What is Foursquare? I can't remember what all the symbols were. My apologia was not ready. That was the last time in my life that I was ever asked that question and didn't know the answer to it. <laughs> you see, we are called to do our work ahead of time and to have a sound defense of the faith. Have you ever watched a movie with a great court, courtroom scene? The two movies that I love most with courtroom scenes couldn't be more different. The first is A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth! One of the best movie lines ever. My second favorite movie, actually probably equally favorite courtroom scene comes from My Cousin Vinny. Very, very different movie. But fantastic in every way. If you've seen it, you know. In the courtroom, here's how this works. Did you know that in the courtroom, the truth isn't what always wins the verdict? Did you know that? Did you know that in the courtroom, it comes down to who has the better defense? Who has the better argument? Who has, the, who has presented their facts in a way in which was the most compelling and the most convincing? 
This is how it works in a courtroom. Now, in a courtroom, if you are going to present something to the jury and the defense starts poking holes in your argument and gives a reasonable doubt, then the defense will win. You see, if we don't have this right, if we don't get this right, then the world will poke holes in our argument. They will poke holes in what we say that we believe. Because if they come to us and they say, well, what about this? And we say, I don't really know. I'm not sure. We've got to get ready. I want to put this quote up here, but I want to change what it says. It was through worship. I sensed like I had a word wrong in here. And it says, I said this, the problem we see with modern apologetics is that Christians get wishy-washy about what God's word says. If you want to just cross out that word modern and put the word cultural. Because I believe right now in the church as a whole, not abundant life, we got this down, right? Amen. But just in case, we're going to talk about it more. The problem with cultural apologetics, which is I've got to figure out how to fit God's word into this culture so that people don't say that I'm a terrible person. The problem with cultural apologetics is that Christians get wishy-washy about what God's word says. Either we don't know what it says, we don't like what it says. I mean, come on, there's plenty of things that I don't like what it says. If I'm in sin and the Bible tells me I'm in sin, I don't like that it says that, but it doesn't make the word of God wrong and me right. And so we either don't know what it says, we don't like what it says, or we have believed this lie. And this is one of the biggest lies that I see present in some Christian movements today. And I don't believe it's present in the movement in our denomination, in Foursquare, Assembly of God, I don't see it, but I see this happen. And I've heard this. I have heard this phrase from a pastor. It just isn't relevant for this circumstance in this day and age. And when we begin to take God's word and begin to say things like, it just doesn't seem to be relevant anymore. Like, that was fine for then, but, but how can you take something that's a couple thousand years old and say that it's still relevant today? Listen, church, Jesus is either the same yesterday, today, and forever, or he's not. And, and I don't, I'm not, gonna, I, I don't, I'm not a, a Christian or a preacher who just cherry-picks little passages of Scripture. This is what's called, one of the most dangerous things that people can do, and I've seen it done, is what I like to call one-verse theology where they pick one verse out of the Bible and they create their doctrine around it and they form everything around it instead of looking at the fullness of the Word of God and saying, what is this really saying to me? And so the Bible, we can't begin to say things like it's just not relevant. And yet what I hear from Christians is that there are aspects of God's Word that aren't relevant anymore. Now, sure, there are some things that aren't relevant in light of Jesus. For example, when we gather on Sunday mornings, we don't have an altar, we don't bring in a sheep, and we don't sacrifice it and cook it and sprinkle the blood. We don't do that anymore because Jesus fulfilled that. He fulfilled that, and he became the sacrifice. And so are there things in the Bible? Sure, there are things of the law that Jesus fulfilled. But when we take things in God's word and just begin to throw them out, because when we look at our world and our culture and say, I don't know, it just seems kind of outdated. Then we begin to get in a dangerous place. And when we do that, the world will poke holes in your case. 
Here's what I'll tell you. You can't follow Jesus and then choose which of his teachings to believe. You cannot separate the teacher from the teaching. Christian, if you say, I follow Jesus, if you say, I love Jesus, I have relationship with Jesus, you can't separate the teacher from his teaching. If he is Lord, then his teaching has authority in our lives. This is how it works. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so he says to us, Peter says, let's see, how does he say it? Because I wrote it down differently than what he said it. He says, honor Christ as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord is holy. In some translations, it says this. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. In other words, when you are setting something aside as holy, you're saying, I am going to set this. This is going to be separate. This is separate. This is stands alone. This doesn't mix in with everything else. That if I was to sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart, that means I'm making him the only Lord in my life. And I am willing when he confronts me to begin to clear out the idols in my heart, to set him apart as the only object of worship in my life. Because there are things in this world that you can worship and that we do worship, that we need to clear out and sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Because here's the problem. If we begin to Put substitute saviors. Let's talk about it that way. Substitute saviors. Things that save you in your life. Well, all I need is Jesus. And yet if we live a faith that says all I need is Jesus and, and, and we begin to add other things, and, well, all I need is Jesus, but really, I really could use this over here. Like, the Maserati... Jesus and that, then I'll feel like I'm okay. All I need is Jesus, whatever it happens to be. And we add these things in, but the problem is, is if you don't sanctify Christ in your heart and you say, okay, the only Savior I need is Jesus. I don't need relationships to save me, to make me feel whole. I don't need money to fulfill me, to make me feel like I'm going to make it in this life. I don't need status to feel like I'm worth something. I don't need someone to tell me that I'm worth something to know that I'm worth something. See, if you don't sanctify Christ in your heart, it will contain too many other influences to make a sound defense of your faith. If we are worshiping multiple things, if we don't say, Jesus, it is you and it is you alone and my life will be guided by your word. There's so many opinions out there. Now, I wanna, I wanna here's the problem. When I say sanctify, I don't mean go in your house Create a prayer room and never leave it. Don't interact with anyone in the world. When you go to the grocery store, keep your blindfolds on. Don't make eye contact with any sinners. Because, whoo, you'll get in trouble. They'll rub off on you. That's not what I'm talking about. Not some legalistic, religious type of thing where we just say, I, I won't be in the world. But see, that's, that's not what's happening. We, we, we live in a, in a culture right now where even in the Christian world, we, we say things like, but, but, but wait, wait, Jesus ate with sinners. So it's okay if I go participate in what it is they're doing. Jesus ate with sinners. It's okay if I embrace everything in their lifestyle and what they, they believe. Listen, Jesus didn't eat with sinners because he wanted to appear inclusive 
tolerant, and accepting. Jesus ate with sinners to call them to repentance. He ate with sinners to bring them to salvation. He ate with sinners to show them he was the way and the truth and the life. That is why Jesus ate with sinners. But we sometimes, if we don't have our apologia straight, then we go in these places and we begin to participate in the sin with sinners. We begin to embrace it. And so Peter says, you've got to be able to give a good answer. You've got to be, have the defense of your faith right. Does anyone ever encounter anything in this world or anyone in this world where you say, I, I get put in situations where when I say I'm a Christian, the looks I get, or all of a sudden I'm backed into a place of like, now I've got to defend what I believe. Does that happen to anybody? Anybody at all? Does that happen to you where you say, okay, I, I, uh, I tell them about Jesus and all of a sudden, whoo, the conversation takes a turn. They can't change that topic fast enough. We've got to be able to speak what we believe and stand our ground because we are living right now in a time in which what God's word says through you is being silenced, it is being pushed down, it is being suppressed, it is being tossed out. Boy, I wish I could remember this, this verse. I'm going to look it up real quick. It just came to my mind, but I can't remember the reference. So bear with me as I spontaneously change some notes. It'll just take me a second. I think. Just kidding. Second Timothy. I guess I didn't write down the reference right. That's all right. Here's what, here's what Paul says to Timothy. In Second Timothy. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. Paul's writing from prison, but he says to this to Timothy, but the word of God cannot be chained. It cannot be chained. See, Christian, you, you can be in a place in which the world wants to look at you and say, I don't want to hear what you believe. I don't care. If you say that, slander and intimidation comes. But listen, God's word cannot be chained. God's word cannot be silenced. And the question is, is will we as his people begin to step into an apologia? Would we begin to step into a place in which we are ready to make a defense for the hope that we have? That is the challenge, and there is a strategy. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There is a strategy. 3 through 5, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ, of God, and take captive, every thought captive to obey Christ. Listen, we aren't fighting against people, we're fighting against strongholds. And that's the first thing you have got to keep in mind when you go to defend your faith. You are not fighting a person, you are fighting a stronghold. And there are strongholds in this world, and I want to just talk to you about just one of them. You might have noticed that June has de been deemed Pride Month. Have you noticed it anywhere? Every single commercial, every store, I walk into a store because I needed to buy some shoes and there's a huge display of pride everything. I go and I get on an airplane 
And my airline is flying with pride this month. It's everywhere is Pride Month. Everything. Now, if you don't know what Pride Month is, it is a month-long celebration of the LGBT lifestyle. It's made its way into every major corporation, every sports team, every school. I found out later that my school every day was pushing the kids to take a, uh, a period of silence in their day as a part of solidarity with Pride Month. It's on airlines. We had a young man in our church who was in the hospital, and they had a time where he was being taught about Pride Month while in the hospital. Everywhere. Now, some people say, hold on, time out. It, scripture's not really clear on this subject. That's just Old Testament. That's just the law. Go read Romans 1, 18 through 32. I don't think I wrote that down in the notes. Romans 1, 18 through 32. I don't want to read it all right now, but it couldn't be more clear on what God says. And at the end of that section, he finishes by saying this. Where did I get, where did I write it? He finishes and says, they not only continue to do these very things, get this, but also approve of those who practice them. He's talking specifically about this topic. Pride Month is literally that. A public display of approval for this lifestyle. And there is an agenda at play that is targeting the generations to come. There is an agenda at play. It is more than an agenda, though. It is a stronghold. There is a stronghold that is getting stronger and being more established in our society. I want to read you some statistics. And this statistics, this is the statistics, Americans who identify in the LGBT lifestyle, and there's a way more abbreviations now. It's like LGBTQ+, it, it keeps going. LGBT is the, is the traditional lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual. Okay? So this is, the, this is the beginning, this is kind of the initial thing. So in the baby boomer generation, there's probably some baby boomers in here. Interview, this is a very recent survey. 2% of baby boomers said, yeah, I think I fall, I fall into that lifestyle. I think I fall into that, that I am LGBT, that I am there in that. In Gen X, the next generation, which I'm part of, 3.8% of Americans answered, yes, I identify with the LGBT lifestyle personally. Millennials, 9.1%. Gen Z, this is your kids right now. 15.9%. Do you see a stronghold developing? Do you see a stronghold developing? Here's, here's an interesting note. I had to do some deep, deep digging and research on this. Pride Month has been around since 1969, but it didn't become mainstream until President Obama officially declared June, the month of June, Pride Month in 2009. At that time, when we begin as a nation celebrating Pride Month, the oldest of the Gen Z generation was 12 years old, just entering into the most formative years of their life. The Gen Xers were ages 13 through 28. The youngest of Gen Z hadn't even been born yet. All they've ever known is that June is Pride Month. I don't think that the rise in these statistics and these numbers is a coincidence. Is there a measure of people that have 
identify with this lifestyle over all these generations that didn't feel safe, didn't feel as though, uh, that they felt as though they'd be rejected if they spoke up and said, absolutely there is. And now that it has very, been very uh, welcomed and embraced in our society, they feel like I can now say something. But that's the difference between 2% and 2.5%. Not the difference between 2% and 16%. There is an agenda to break down God's plan for sexuality, to break down God's plan for relationship, God's plan for marriage, God's plan for reproduction. And the thing is, church, is that if we continue to be silent, if we don't address the stronghold, there will be a grip on generations to come. Look at the curve. It's not going up and down and up and down. It's just going up. And so Peter says, church, do you have an answer? Do you have an answer? Do you know what it is to say? And it's not just on this topic. Not just on this topic. How do you address racism biblically? How do you address equity biblically? How do you address sexual education in schools biblically? And there's some bad stuff. Not all the schools around here are teaching it in a terrible manner, but there are schools. And if we watch the curve, we know that depravity doesn't just kind of ebb and flow in our culture. It seems to only go up. We can't sit back and just watch anymore because there is a war being waged in our culture and so we address every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, is what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. But please don't forget that Peter says to do it with gentleness and respect. It is important to do it with gentleness and respect. Bodie Bauckham says the gospel is offensive enough, it doesn't need your help. You destroy the argument, not the person. If you are rude, mean, and condescending, you are also not lined up with Scripture. Because he says, do it with gentleness and respect. The Bible is very, very clear. We are to love our neighbor. And you know the example Jesus gives of neighbor? A Samaritan. And to Jesus, a Samaritan is someone who doesn't look like you, who doesn't think like you, and doesn't believe the same as you. And he says, that's who you are to love. That is your neighbor. And so we are charged with this tension of saying, God, show us how to have a defense against the, the stronghold, against the argument, but show us how to love the person. This is our calling. Listen, you can't meme your way out of this. You can't tweet your way into a good, solid defense of God's word. If your entire approach of defending the word of God is posting something on your social media that is brash, rude, mean, condescending. Your defense is no good because you now haven't done it with gentleness and respect. If, you, if all it is is saying things against people. Listen, we're not after hating people. We are not after going after people. We are about dealing with the spiritual strongholds that the enemy is growing and establishing in our culture. That's what this is about. And I believe you can simultaneously love people with the heart of God and stand 
for what the Bible says and not compromise on it. It is possible. It is possible. I will preach the word of God with sincerity and someone can call me hateful or bigoted, but guess what? They are wrong. And I'll give them a hug and I'll buy them dinner just to show them. I'm serious. We can do both. We're charged to love. I'm going to just wrap this up. I have so much to say. But I'm going to just play you a three-minute clip, and we're going to wrap up here. Um, This is Vody Bauckham, if you haven't heard of him. Um, He has a lot to say on these topics. He's a pastor. Uh, Could we roll that clip, the three-minute clip? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Folks, this is about developing a biblical worldview. This is about us as Christians learning to think biblically about everything. Part of the problem, part of the problem that we're having is that as Christians, many of us have not thought biblically about race and ethnicity. And so we don't have a well-developed theology in this area. So now along comes this well-developed theology. And yes, it is a theology. It absolutely is a theology. It's a well-developed theology from critical theory and from critical race theory and intersectionality. And here we are. We, we know that there are things that are wrong that need to be made right, but we don't have a well-developed theology and we don't really think well about these things. And now all of a sudden, here comes this well-developed theology and we don't have an alternative to it and we don't have an answer for it. So some people are beginning to adopt it. We have to take every thought captive. Thoughts about sexuality. We have to take those thoughts captive instead of just parroting ideas from the culture and falling prey to every wind of doctrine that comes our way. We have to take every thought captive. This is how we wage this war. This is how we engage on these topics. Recognize that we are in the midst of a battle. That we are under attack. That we are under siege. Recognize that this battle is a spiritual one. We're not at war with people. This is a spiritual war. Recognize that the weapons that we have, this gospel that we preach, this Bible that we have in our possession, this absolute truth from the one true and living God that is ours, these things most surely believed among us, these things are more powerful than any weapon we can comprehend. And they are enough. They are sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. I do not need sociologists and psychologists to complete me in my thinking about humanity. 
I don't go to sociology text and psychology text and political science text and then bring them as a lens through which I view the Bible. No, I take the Bible and I use it as the lens through which I critique those texts. Now, last thing he said, that's the call of the church, is that the starting place is here. That we don't just look out in a culture and say, look at all these things. Okay, I'm going to take everything they said and, and just say, okay, there's some validity, and now I'm going to see if I can figure out how it fits into God's Word. We don't define God's Word. God's Word defines us. And so we, we start in God's Word, and we say, I place that over everything. And God's Word is what is supreme in my life. It is what is the highest authority in my life. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And I realize that what I'm seeing right now in culture is that when it comes to holding true to our professed belief in God's word, some Christians are swerving all over the place. And he says, let us hold unswervingly. It's time to get on track. It's time to engage in our culture. It's time to stand for truth. It's time to stand for the love of God in our culture. There is no substitute. And what humanity longs for, because God placed it in the heart of man, is to be loved by God, to experience true love by God, to experience acceptance by God, to experience forgiveness and grace from God. We are his apologia. We are the answer he has given to the world. And if we just sit down and stay silent, then the world will never find the hope that you have. Because you do have hope. I, I know you have hope. These are the difficult things that we have to wrestle with in our faith and with our culture. But God's word will not return void. And so I encourage you today to begin to dig into the Word of God and begin to study it, begin to know what it says about these things. When you hear things, you can watch. I've got, given you some resources at the, at the bottom of the, the notes, if you're on the church notes. I believe there's some resources that I've given you. You can see those there. There's a vi I don't know if I put the name of that video. I did? Okay. And uh, there's a couple of books, but then there's a really good book. It's called the Bible, and there's an a apologetics study Bible that you can get. It's not cheap, but it is worth it. And it begins to show you how to defend your faith. Because at our current approach, it's not just going to get better. We have got to begin to be that banner for God for morality, for what he says. Because we know this is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you have a heart for someone who is in a lifestyle that God's word says is not a lifestyle that God approve of, approves of, if you have a heart for them, good. Because you should. And you have an opportunity to show them what real life is in Jesus Christ. And let Jesus do the work. The Holy Spirit is the one who does transformation in our hearts and in our lives. I, I bet most of you, 
in your lives, if you've got areas of your life that, that are, are, are tough areas, that are sin areas, that are struggle areas, the correction that God has brought to you in your life probably came more from the Holy Spirit and from someone else who lives in your house telling you that you're terrible. Because the Holy Spirit is who does transformation work in our life. So we don't wage a war where we just bicker and argue over ideology. But we stand for the truth of God in love. And if we begin to do that, I, you're not doing this just for yourself. You're doing this for your grandchildren. You're doing this for your children. You're doing this because you want to see the fullness of God's plan for their life unfold. Amen? Maybe you don't have kids. Great. You're doing it for your friends' children. God has a best way to live our life. Do you know what that is? And do you have an answer when someone asks? Will you stand with me this morning? I just want to pray over you as we go. Lord God, this morning we come before you. And Lord, we, we place our lives in your hands, Lord. Lord, we say help today. We need your help. Lord, we, we wrestle with the word of God and we say, God, what your word says is what goes. And so, Lord God, if we have opinions or thoughts or we have imprinted other ideas onto your word, Lord God, I pray that you would, with your power of your Holy Spirit, come and bring correction to us even, Lord. Lord, we surrender our ways, our thoughts, Lord God. We surrender and we ask for forgiveness, Lord God, where we have been judgmental. Lord, we ask for forgiveness where we've been brash. We ask for forgiveness where we've put every person who has sin in their life in a category, Lord God. We ask for forgiveness where we have somehow ranked some sins worse than other sins, Lord God. And we just turn to you and we say, God, you have the answers and you have the way in your word. And Lord God, I pray that you would open up your scriptures to us. They would come alive in our lives, Lord God. And when we're faced with these things in our culture, Lord God, that we would know what your word says and that you would show us how to stand on the truth, that you would give us courage to stand on the truth of your word. And Lord, we know that slander will come. We know that intimidation will come. And Lord, we ask that you would cover us, that you, your protection would be upon us, Lord God. I pray that our courage would not depart from us when intimidation comes. But Lord, that your church would begin to rise up and speak the truth. That your church would begin to rise up and bring a message of reconciliation. Lord, that your church would rise up and begin to give an answer on how we, we break apart disparities and racial inequalities and all, all that is the present, Lord God, and the sins of the past. Lord, I pray that your church would come and bring solutions based on your word, Lord God. Lord, let your voice in our lives be louder than the voices in our culture around us. Make us ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.